So, Peter, it's a real joy to have you with us this evening. And uh, thank you so much for accepting our invitation and uh, traveling from London to Timisoara. And then we know you're going to Yash and uh, so on. So, um, we are here looking forward to what you have prepared to share with us this evening, like we've agreed. Uh, it will be mainly your presentation, uh, the first part, and then room for some discussions. Great. Um, okay, and thank you again. Okay. And, uh, thank you, thank you. And as I go through, do um, because we're trying to do this all in English, and particularly since uh, inevitably I will end up dealing with some technical issues, although I'm, I'm trying to. Uh, communicate it as, as uh, easily for you as I can. Uh, if there are uh, points of clarification or you need uh, something translated, um, then do, uh, we can pause for that. Uh, but if we can try and keep the sort of substantive discussion and uh, questions uh, about the material until after the, the presentation, I think that will work best. If you do... If you do want to find out uh, more about me or my publications, find out my website address, find out about my podcast, etc., do take with you one of these giant business cards uh, that I've had uh, printed that give you various recommended readings and all sorts of useful information. So I'm going to talk about uh, Richard Dawkins and particularly his uh, best-selling book, uh, The God Delusion, uh, which uh, recently came out in a, a second edition uh, with a new foreword written by Dawkins uh, defending uh, what he sees as his key points in the book uh, against uh, some of the criticism uh, that has been uh, made uh, against that book. Uh, Dawkins is perhaps the most famous British uh, atheist. Uh, uh, he's a zoologist by background uh, and um, published a number of very uh, well-selling uh, popular science books, but in more recent years has turned uh, his uh, uh, intellectual firepower uh, upon uh, religion in general and Christianity in particular. And uh, his book, the, the God Delusion, which was part of this uh, new or neo-atheist publishing wave uh, at the beginning of the 21st century, uh, sold over three million copies. And as I say, recently he's come out into a second edition uh, as well. I wanted to say a little bit about uh, arguments for God, theistic arguments. Uh, that what arguments for God are trying to do is to, to formalise to rationally motivate our recognition of relationships that hold between God and God's creation. Uh, where each of those relationships that you can uncover and make explicit with an argument adds to our overall picture of God. So it's, it's rare for a philosopher to try and make an argument that will uh, do the whole thing in one and more common these days for people to think that it's the fact that we have lots of different arguments that are all pointing in the same general direction, each of which uh, adds to your picture of the nature of this reality uh, behind 
the mundane physical uh, universe that we recognise uh, around us. Uh, hence the, the picture of the, the, the jigsaw puzzle, the kind of gradually building up each jigsaw piece is a different argument in a, a cumulative case, a cumulative argument for theism. Now many of those relationships between God and creation that, that these arguments uh, purport uh, to uh, point out to us are things that uh, are actually intuitively perceived by most people, I would say. And, and that explains why most people believe in God. Um, just in, in terms of the percentage of the world population who believe in a creator God, uh, even down to the fact that I've got some interesting statistics here about the majority of agnostics believe in a higher power. Some agnostics even say uh, they believe in God as described in the Bible. And yet they self-identify as agnostics, perhaps because they don't identify with any particular uh, religious denomination or tradition of organised religion. Uh, so they call themselves agnostics. Um, so the, the number of people who believe in some kind of creator, some kind of God, some kind of transcendent personal reality uh, behind the universe uh, is very large. And I think that's because it's an intuitive belief for people. Whether or not you think that intuition is mistaken or correct, uh, well, that's something that we get into when we start arguing through the arguments for and against theism. Daniel Dennett, who is a New Atheist philosopher, uh, praises Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, for, as he says, flattening all the serious arguments for the existence of God. And I've just put in brackets there, it, it doesn't, uh, because it doesn't. Um, there is indeed a wider range of arguments for God than most people, including Richard Dawkins, realise. So Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion, uh, in the first edition, devoted 37 pages of his book to uh, wrestling with, and uh, I would say quite a shallow way, uh, the philosophical arguments for the existence of God. Um, he discusses uh, 10 theistic uh, arguments that he uh, separates out. Well. Compare that to the fact that uh, a standard sort of textbook in this area, a recent textbook, the uh, Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology, uh, there are nine arguments for God that are discussed in, in that uh, book, only five of which appear in The God Delusion. Uh, Alvin Plantinga, a famous uh, American Christian philosopher, famously uh, once in the 1980s gave a paper that he called Two Dozen or So Arguments for God. Uh, a paper that recently spawned a whole academic conference and a book of papers published from that conference called Two Dozen or So Arguments for God, uh, which I uh, recommend for these two books for a very high level engagement with these issues. Um, so if Dawkins, even if he does uh, flatten the ten arguments that he looks at, uh, he's looked at less than half of the arguments uh, that professional philosophers are discussing uh, these days. So Dennett is definitely wrong when he says he flattens all of the serious arguments for the existence of God. 
Let's just look at, at one very briefly. The, the focus of my talk this evening will be, as advertised, uh, the design argument. That's what Dawkins looks at and talks about the most. Um, but the cosmological argument will be a, a useful bit of background for us here as well. Here, uh, noting uh, Dawkins, noting uh, Thomas Aquinas's. Uh, argument that a, a causal regress, we have one thing causing another thing and something else causing that thing and so on, you have a regress of causes. Uh, Thomas Aquinas argued that such a regress must, must stop, must terminate somewhere, uh, lest it become an infinite regress that just keeps going and going and going. Well, Dawkins complains that Aquinas makes, as he says, just the, the entirely unwarranted assumption uh, that God himself is immune to this regress of causality. In, in other words, you could put it this way, Dawkins, to the cosmological argument of Aquinas, says, yeah, but who made God? But this means that Dawkins simply fails to recognise that the, the cosmological argument he's discussing just is an argument for the need to recognise the existence of something that is immune to this regress of causality. It doesn't assume it, it argues for it. And Dawkins just doesn't engage with the argument. Let me uh, give you a sort of concrete image, an example of this thinking. Uh, suppose I ask you to, to loan, loan me a book and you say to me, well, I don't have a copy of that book right now, but here's what I'll do. I'll ask my friend to lend me his copy, and then I can lend it to you, okay? Well, suppose when you go to your friend to ask them to loan you the book so you can loan it to me, they say exactly the same thing to you. And suppose that that just keeps on happening. Well, surely two things should be clear. First of all, if this process of asking to borrow the book just goes on infinitely, then I will never get the book from you. Secondly, if I do get the book from you, then the process that led to me getting it, however long that process may have been, that process could not have been one that was infinite in extent. Somewhere down the, down the line of requests to borrow the book, someone had the book without having to borrow it from anywhere else. Now apply that kind of illustration to thinking about receiving a cause of your existence. Not borrowing a book, but receiving a cause of your existence. Likewise, argues uh, an American philosopher, Richard Pertill, consider any contingent, any caused reality. The same two principles as in that book illustration would apply. If the process of everything getting its existence from something else went on to infinity, then the thing in question would never have been given existence. And if the thing has, has existence, then the process can't have gone on to infinity. There, there was something that had existence without having to receive it from somewhere else. Just as there had to be someone who had the book without having to borrow it from somewhere else. 
So a very simple way of putting a, a cosmological argument would be to argue like this. Two premises, two statements that lead to a conclusion. Um, this is a deductive argument. That means that if these two premises are true, then the conclusion must be true. So claim number one, since it is impossible for everything to be contingent, for everything to be a caused thing, if anything exists, then there must exist a, a non-contingent, uh, an uncaused, uh, a necessary thing. And I could give two, two reasons for believing that. Uh, first of all, as the illustrations we've looked at indicate, there just can't be an infinite regress of causes. That doesn't explain why something exists. Or think of it this way. Look, there's nothing outside of everything to do any causing of anything. It's impossible for everything to be caused because what outside of everything is there to do the causing? Well, by, by definition, outside of everything is nothing. The second claim about reality, something exists. This is very hard to deny. <laughs> uh, you contradict yourself if you try to deny it. But given those two premises, it just follows deductively that therefore there must exist a, an uncaused thing, a necessary non-contingent thing. And then we could ask further questions about the, the nature of that uncaused thing, but it doesn't seem to be the same kind of thing as the things around us that we know have causes. Dallas uh, Willard uh, sums up the argument this way. Uh, the, the dependent character of physical states, together with the completeness, the, the non-infinity of that series of dependencies which underlie the existence of any particular given physical thing, logically implies at least one self-existent or uh, therefore non-physical uh, state of being given that physical things by nature have causes, are contingent. And Dawkins just doesn't really engage with that line of argument. He just says, you're just assuming, assuming that God, at the end of that argument, doesn't have a cause. But you see, that the argument just is an argument that there must be a thing that doesn't have a cause, and then the argument says, and, and that's part of what we mean by God. Um, but, of course, Dawkins focuses most of his attention on what he thinks of, of, of as the, the designing God temptation. He calls it a temptation to believe in a designer God. The God temptation is the temptation to evade, by invoking a designer, the responsibility to explain uh, the world around us. Um, of course, what Dawkins calls the God temptation is it's simply this widely shared intuition that I talked about, that the, the universe, the cosmos, is best explained by invoking a divine designer of some kind. It's useful to think here, first of all, about issues about the burden of proof, um, the principle of credulity, the principle of when it's reasonable to believe something. Richard Swinburne, who's a famous British uh, philosopher, 
notes that it's just a, a basic principle of knowledge about when it's reasonable to believe things, that we should believe things are as they seem to be until we have evidence that we're mistaken. He says, you don't say, I'm not going to believe anything until you give me evidence that I'm wrong, that, 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 I, that I should believe it. Because if you do that, and you applied that, that principle uh, even-handedly, you would never end up believing anything. Because you say, I'm, I'm not going to believe you until you give me a reason that I should believe you. And so you give me a reason. And I say, yes, but I'm not going to believe that 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 reason really supports that conclusion, that, that evidence really exists and points to uh, the truth of what you said. I'm not going to believe that, that you really mean it, uh, and so on, until, of course, I need to have some evidence for those things. <laughs> and you get into an infinite uh, regress. So he says that the rational thing to do is actually we, we start with the way the world seems to be to us, and then we, we are open to changing our minds when people bring forth evidence to show that we were wrong. Uh, and we can, we can do that because we don't have to bring forth evidence for the evidence and evidence for the evidence for the evidence in order to change our minds uh, on the basis of other evidence that we trust. So you think of it this way, in very simplistic terms, um, if it looks like a duck, it's probably a duck. I mean, Maybe it's not a duck, uh, maybe it's a robot, uh, a very convincing uh, robot uh, built, uh, no doubt, at the Western University uh, here in Timisoara, uh, or the Polytechnic, depending on which way your loyalties lie. Um, <laughs> so maybe it's not really a duck, but it looks like a duck, uh, it's probably a duck. To convince me that it's not a, not a duck, you could give me evidence that would change my mind, but it's kind of, it's your job to convince me that I'm wrong about this being a duck. It's not my job to bring forth evidence to show that I'm right, because, I mean, look, it's pretty obviously a duck. That's kind of what Swinburne is saying. So think about design in these terms. The ancient Roman orator Cicero famously said this, he said, what could be more clear or obvious, more intuitive, when we look up at the sky and contemplate the heavens, than that there is some divinity of superior intelligence? Or Richard Dawkins, who famously defined biology as the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Now, of course, he wants to say that that appearance is misleading, um, but applying kind of Swinburne's thinking, he would have to say it's his job to show, to give us evidence that that appearance is misleading, rather than our job to bring forth evidence that it's not. So we can have a, a very simple, intuitive level kind of design argument, it's sort of one step beyond just looking and thinking, wow, look at the universe, there must be a God. Again, two premises leading to a conclusion. We can quote from Cicero and from uh, Dawkins uh, and uh, from Swinburne. And we can say we, we ought to believe that things are as they seem to be until we've got reason to think we're wrong. 
And secondly, those two quotes from, from Cicero and Swinburne, what could be more clear or obvious when we look at the universe than that there's some uh, divinity of superior intelligence and biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose from which it follows that until we have evidence that we're mistaken, we ought to believe that there is some divinity of superior intelligence who designed the universe and designed the world. That kind of sets the, uh, the, 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 the starting moves in the debate. It doesn't settle the debate, but it puts the debate about is there a creator in, in the right context, I think, of the issue of who has the burden of proof. Dawkins points particularly to uh, um, two areas of the design uh, temptation. And he notes, for example, that you and I and every other living creature are what he calls machines of ineffable complexity, the complexity of a magnitude to challenge our credulity, to challenge our belief. And he, I appreciate this as a philosopher, he, he very carefully defines his terms here, which many people don't. But he says here, complexity here means a statistical improbability in a non-random direction. So it's not just complexity, not just unlikeliness, but unlikeliness in a non-random direction, in, in a specific direction. The, and he, as he says, the direction of seeming designed for a purpose. In other words, Dawkins acknowledges uh, what some theoreticians call specified complexity is a plausible indicator of design. Indeed, in an op-ed piece for a free inquiry magazine, an atheist magazine, Dawkins wrote that specified complexity as a notion takes care of the sensible point that in the unique arrangement disposition of its parts, uh, a pile of detached watch parts tossed around in a box, so here we have various cog wheels and um, the arms of a watch and the face of a watch, and it's all just a jumble of parts. It says, this pile of detached watch parts, uh, any jumble arrangement of those parts is just as improbable, just as complicated in that sense, as a fully functioning, genuinely complicated watch. This is one arrangement of all of those bits out of all of the possible arrangements of all of those bits. Any arrangement of those watch parts is one arrangement out of all of the possible arrangements. So in that sense, they're all equally unlikely. But of course, very few of those arrangements would be a functioning watch, are arranged in the specific direction that seems designed, yeah? that, that carries out a function. He says, what's specified about a watch is it's improbable in the specific direction of telling the time. It, it, it achieves this function through its complexity. Uh, so Dawkins is saying it's not just that things are complicated that makes them uh, uh, the appeal to design uh, an appealing one, it's the fact that they're complicated in a very specific way. And I think that's, that's right. And this kind of test is used in all sorts of scientific fields for testing hypotheses about uh, design. You know, what, um, was it murder or was it death by natural causes? Uh, 
Uh, is the uh, radio message that we've received at the antennae, is that just static from space? Is it uh, the pulsing of a pulsar? Or have we made contact with an alien civilization? Um, well, we would want a signal from space that was not only complicated, but that was specified in this sense, for example. And that would be a good indication that we'd, we'd contacted ET. Uh, another concrete illustration, uh, William Lane Craig, an American philosopher, uh, puts it this way. He says, in a poker game, any deal of the cards is equally and highly improbable. But if you find when you're playing a game that every time a certain player deals the cards, he ends up getting all four aces, you can bet that this is not the result of chance, but of design. And if you uh, challenge that player for cheating, and he said, what are you complaining about? Look, any arrangement of these cards is equally unlikely. <laughs> it's just one deal out of all of the possible deals. Um, well, that wouldn't save him uh, from uh, the, uh, the annoyed cowboys in Dodge City, uh, would it? So Dawkins, having set this, this background, which I, I think I actually agree with him on, on this, uh, he then says it's, you know, there's a temptation to apply this to the world, and this is where he has a problem. There's an organic and a cosmological design temptation. He says at the organic level, every animal embodies a statistical complexity of detail, uh, in a non-random direction indeed, that is, animals exhibit specified complexity, and at the cosmic level, uh, the, the, the well-known issue of the fine-tuning of the laws and constants of nature, he says the laws and constants of physics are fine-tuned in such a way as to set up the conditions under which uh, peacocks and humans and our brains and so on can come into existence. He even says it's almost as though you have to have faith that it really is only a trick. Faith that nothing supernatural has happened. How might Dawkins go about rebutting uh, what we've called the, the organic design problem? Well, he appeal, appeals to, to Darwin, as you might expect, and he says, Darwin patiently tells us exactly how the trick of life works, uh, cumulative natural selection. Well, there's lots that could be discussed about this, but let me, in a sense, do, a, do an end run around the issue by pointing out that when it comes to the question of the origin of life, the origin of life that is able to undergo evolution by cumulative natural selection, Dawkins' appeal to evolution by cumulative natural selection is, of course, a complete, in English we have the phrase, a complete red herring, a, a complete non-answer. Um, it is itself a sort of trick. Um, uh, hunt saboteurs used to um, try and confuse the dogs from chasing the foxes by dragging smelly fish across the, uh, 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 across the, the path of the, the hunt going after hunting the foxes to try and lure them away. My battery is running low, it says it shouldn't be, because um, this should be turned on and there should be power coming through this. No. There we go. Ah, yeah. Oh, perhaps we'll try another plug. 
<laughs> yeah, okay. It likes that. No? Uh, can we... Um, will it reach to the, the one on the floor over there, maybe? Uh, no, doesn't like that. Okay, let's try that one. Seems like that. Marvellous. Okay. He always uses the four aces. <laughs> <coughs> yeah. So you can't explain the origin of things that have all of the complexity that allows the, the differentiated passing on of information that can be selected by natural selection as it reproduces and so on. You can't explain the origin of that by appealing to the process that can only get going once you have something complicated enough to undergo that process. Uh, so whatever we make of Darwin as an answer to the, uh, the, the complexity of life since its origin, uh, appealing to Darwinism or neo-Darwinism or whatever uh, framework of, of uh, explanation there under the, the natural sciences uh, in terms of purely natural forces just doesn't seem to address the issue of where uh, life itself comes from. As the atheist philosopher of science Bradley Monton puts it, Darwinian evolution only comes into play once life already exists. Darwinian evolution doesn't explain or even, even claim to explain how life came to arise in the first place. So uh, Dawkins has kind of avoided the issue here. In terms of the, the cosmological, the fine-tuning uh, temptation, uh, Dawkins appeals, as many people do, to the so-called multiverse idea, the idea that there are maybe lots and lots of different universes out there, all with slightly uh, randomly different uh, laws of nature and constants and so on, uh, so that by, by chance, by luck, it's not actually all that unlikely that, our universe, that a universe somewhere would hit upon this specific life-permitting combination of laws. Uh, he says there are, you know, there are billions of universes having different laws and constants. Uh, of course, we could only find ourselves in one of the minority of universes uh, that happen to be uh, such that life can exist within it. But if we formalise Dawkins' objection, we notice that it goes like this. What he's really saying against the fine-tuning design argument is if there were enough different universes, then the admittedly specified life-permitting structure of our universe wouldn't actually be complex or unlikely enough to justify making a design appeal, a design inference. Um, there are enough different universes, therefore the fine-tuning doesn't justify this design inference. But I've got Premise 2 flashing away here because Dawkins doesn't bring forth any evidence that there are other universes. All he says is, is there's this theory that there could be. 
But that's not enough to undermine <laughs> a, a design argument. It's a little bit like me saying, okay, it, it, it looks like this was not a death by natural causes. It looks like he was murdered. I mean, the guy's got uh, a dagger uh, in between his shoulder blades. Um, but, you know, um, there could be aliens out there somewhere. Um, maybe, you know, there are aliens uh, from Alpha Proxima Centauri. And maybe they've developed warp technology, although, you know, we, we don't seem to have cracked that one yet. And maybe they came to Earth and something happened uh, where they bumped into this guy and, you know, they didn't want to reveal their existence to human beings. Uh, and uh, they saw this knife uh, at hand and uh, they murdered the guy with the knife and then left in their UFO. In the, um, so uh, y there's no point in prosecuting any human being. Uh, for this crime, because maybe there are aliens. Well, okay, maybe there are, but, you know, the lawyer in court who presents this theory, uh, hopefully the jury are going to think to themselves, I wonder if that lawyer is going to present us with any evidence that there actually are aliens, and that they actually do have warp-capable spaceships, and they actually did come to Earth, and that they actually were uh, in the same state at the same time uh, as this guy died uh, and that they are, you know, in the absence of that evidence, just putting out a theory, maybe there are aliens, doesn't really undercut uh, the prosecution's uh, case that it was a murder and therefore we, you know, we probably should be looking for a human suspect. <laughs> Likewise, just saying, well, yeah, there's this theory that there are other universes, unless you actually give any evidence that there are other universes. It's a bit like asking the question, uh, was it monkeys or was it uh, Nina, uh, I'm going to mispronounce this, uh, Cassian? Uh, if X number of monkeys existed somewhere with enough typewriters and paper and they're just randomly <laughs> jabbing away at the typewriters, um, if there were enough of them, then just by random chance, presumably, they could type Nina Cassian's poems by chance. But anyone faced with the many monkeys hypothesis as an explanation uh, for a collection of her poetry will ask, is there any independent reason to believe in the existence of X number of monkeys plus typewriters plus paper, etc.? If not, surely we would be right in favouring the single poet explanation over the many monkeys explanation. Well, as agnostic writer Jim Holt puts it, since other universes are by definition not directly observable from our own, uh, the burden of proof is clearly on those who claim that they exist. Dawkins just doesn't meet this burden of proof. Theoretical physicist Brian Greene says people should be sceptical of multiverse theories simply because there is no evidence supporting their existence. Um, Peter White, uh, in a recent edition of Scientific American, uh, argued that the, the multiverse did it is just an excuse for failure. Uh, it's designed to shut down scientific progress by justifying a failed research program. Atheist Roger Penrose actually argues that there's evidence against multiverse theory. Uh, he points out, for example, how ridiculously uh, 
cheaper in the sense of improbabilities it would be to simply produce by the mere random collision of particles um, the entire solar system with all of its life just ready-made or even just to produce by the random fluctuation of particles a few conscious brains floating in space. So the problem is, well, why did we not come about this way? Uh, which is much more uh, probable, uh, just in, in likeliness terms, rather than from an absurdly less probable uh, billions of years of, of evolution. It seems to me this, this conundrum, this problem, simply points to the incorrectness of the, the bubble universe, the multiple universe uh, idea. The agnostic cosmologist Paul Davies uh, argues that multiverse theories merely shift the problem up a level from the universe to the multiverse. Within the scientific theories of multiverses, he points out there has to be a, a finely tuned universe-generating mechanism. There has to be a thing that's, that's producing lots of different universes. And it has to be structured such that it doesn't just keep producing the same kind of universe again and again. It has to produce different universes again and again, enough times such that it becomes likely that our kind of life-permitting universe would pop up by chance. But that means to explain the fine-tuning of our universe, you end up appealing to the existence of something that has fine-tuning. So you've just shifted the problem up a level. Uh, he says, the multiverse theory cannot provide a complete and final explanation of why the universe is fit for life. So having grasped at a couple of scientific theories to kind of try and rebut this uh, uh, design uh, argument, Dawkins turns his hand to philosophy. And here is really what he thinks of as the key, the central argument of his book says, the designer himself, in order to be capable of designing, would have to be another complex entity of the kind that, in his turn, needs the same kind of explanation. In other words, if you appeal to God to explain the design of the universe, you're going to have to appeal to God's God to explain the design of God. And so on, and so on, and so on. We're back to the sort of who made God question in a slightly different form. In the first edition of The God Delusion, uh, he puts it this way in the, in the, in the book. He says, uh, God would have to be a highly improbable, God would have to be highly improbable in the very same statistical sense as the, the things he is supposed to explain. And in the new foreword of his second edition, he says this argument remains intact and inescapably devastating. I beg to differ. Let me explain why. So we have this statement from Dawkins. The designer himself, in order to be capable of designing, would have to be another complex entity of the kind that in turn needs the same kind of explanation. In other words... One way of thinking of what he's saying is to think he's saying, if you explain the existence of anything with reference to the existence of some other thing that also needs an explanation, then you produce an explanatory regress. Yes, but the question here would be, what's the problem with that? Um, and indeed, positing God as we saw with the cosmological argument, 
to posit that God is the terminus of that regress would be to avoid further regress just by definition. Um, here's another way of thinking what, what maybe he's, what he's getting at. He says, uh, if you're trying to explain something improbable, it can never suffice to invoke an entity that is in itself at least as improbable. But that's just wrong, it seems to me. I mean, here's a self-portrait by the uh, Romanian painter Stefan Lucian. Again, I apologise if I've mispronounced it. Uh, do we make an explanatory advance if we explain the existence of this complex self-portrait in terms of the yet more complex existence of Stefan Lucian, who painted it? He is a lot more complex, uh, has a lot more specified complexity in him than the painting does. And yet, we do make an explanatory advance when we appeal to his existence in order to explain the existence of that painting. So Dawkins is just wrong, it seems to me, uh, in that statement. As William Lane Craig points out, in order for an explanation to be the best explanation of something, you, you don't need to have an explanation of the explanation. It, indeed, such a requirement would generate an infinite regress um, so that everything becomes inexplicable. Uh, we, we need to try and avoid infinite regresses, yes, and if we've seen God is a way of doing that, but there's nothing long, wrong with explanatory regresses in and of themselves, so long as they're not infinite regresses. And Dawkins just seems to me to confuse those two notions, to equivocate between them. So perhaps he is just confusing an explanatory regress with an infinite explanatory regress. And I'd agree. I'd agree with him that an infinite explanatory regress is to be avoided. See our discussion of the cosmological argument. And then I point out that if this is what he's doing... Well, while explaining A by reference to B doesn't necessarily entail an infinite regress, Dawkins himself, uh, in making this argument, he does generate an infinite regress with that rule that you always need an explanation of the explanation. So it's, it's, it's Dawkins that's falling into infinite regression, not the theist. Perhaps, I, I, I'm struggling to try and sort of interpret what he's saying in the most sensible way that we can find, Perhaps his thought is that no explanation that's complex in the sense of being an un unlikely and thus contingent arrangement of parts, like watch parts. Uh, no explanation that refers to that kind of entity can be an ultimate explanation because contingent things require explanation, things that have specified complexity require a design explanation and infinite regresses are to be avoided. Again, I'd agree, but note that in that case, while Dawkins has now unwittingly seemed to endorse both the cosmological and design arguments, he is the one who makes a question-begging assumption that God can't be an uncaused necessary being, and he just assumes that. He doesn't argue for it. He says, critics of my book tried to deny that a God capable of designing something complex must himself be complex in an identical sense, of course. Um, I once bought this, you see this picture here. OMG, design your own deity fridge magnets. Where you've got pictures of all sorts of deities from different religions around the world. And uh, should the mood take you, you can take the, the, uh, the head of Ganesh, 
the Indian elephant god and stick it on the, the body of the Buddha and give him the feet of Jesus or something. You know, design your own deity. To, to think that, that a god is some sort of a, a contingent arrangement of parts. But that's not what theists understand by God, of course. Um, here, at least, Dawkins tries to give an argument that a God who designs the world must, must himself have the, that, that kind of complexity, a contingent arrangement of parts. Why must God be complex rather than, in theological terms, simple? He says, God has to be clever enough to calculate the values of the physical constants that would fine-tune the universe. You call that simple? God has to have enough bandwidth to listen to all the prayers of billions of people simultaneously. The one thing God can't be if he's to match up to the job description is simple. But here Dawkins again just misunderstands the people he quotes. He quotes Richard Swinburne again on the simplicity of God. Uh, quotes Swinburne. Swinburne says, Theism postulates for its one cause a person with infinite power, infinite knowledge and infinite freedom. Unlimited power, knowledge, freedom and so on. And then Dawkins comments, God is supposed to be simple for Swinburne because there is only one of him. Yet that one God has to listen to the prayers of billions and so on. You see, he's completely missed the point that, that Swinburne is driving at. Swinburne's point is not merely that there's only meant to be one God, but rather this, as Swinburne says in, in the book from which uh, Dawkins quotes, a person could not be a person if they had zero power, knowledge, freedom, and so on. But to suppose a finite limit to these qualities is less simple than to suppose no limit. And to suppose infinite degrees of these qualities bound together eternally is to postulate, to think of, the, the simplest kind of person that there could be. Swinburne argues, if you... If you for any being that has a limited degree of these personal qualities, that raises the question, well, why do they have only this much knowledge rather than all the knowledge that, they, that could be had? Why do they only have this much power rather than being omnipotent and so on? And it's in that sense that God is, for Swinburne and other theologians, simple. J. Wesley Richards, uh, in a useful article on divine simplicity, uh, notes that the doctrine of simplicity is principally, mainly the claim that God's not made up of, of elements or properties that are more fundamental than God is. In other words, God's not like those fridge magnets. The existence of the different, bit, different fridge magnets is, is more fundamental than any picture of a deity you make from their combination. But, but God's power or God's knowledge or God's freedom is not more fundamental than God. They're just part of God. <laughs> uh, they're not things that can be sort of detached from God and put in a different arrangement. Or, or you, if you could take God's power away uh, and, and give it to a rabbit. Um, but Dawkins seems to be thinking of God's qualities like we think of those fridge magnets. And that's just kind of bizarre, in a sense. Uh, interestingly, in a discussion with a um, former Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, hosted and moderated by an agnostic 
British philosopher called uh, Sir, Sir Anthony Kenny. Um, uh, Anthony Kenny stepped in on this issue into the discussion. He couldn't help himself. Uh, and he made a distinction. Philosophers love distinctions. And he, he distinguished between what he called complexity of structure and complexity of function. Complexity of structure or complexity of function. These are two different things. And he gave this, this illustration. He said, look, uh, this electric razor, an electric razor, has much more uh, complexity of structure than a cutthroat razor. But the cutthroat razor has much more complexity of function. The electric razor can basically be used for two things. You can cut your hair with it, or you can use it as a paperweight. The cutthroat razor, you can cut your hair with it, you can use it as a paperweight, you can open letters with it, you can chop bread with it, you could kill someone with it, um, <laughs> you can whittle with it and do art. Um, all sorts, you can do all sorts of things with the very simple structure of a cutthroat razor that you can't do with the very complex structure of the electric razor. So these uh, complexity of structure, complexity of function are different things. And notice, Dawkins' argument for why God can't be simple are ba is basically that God carries out lots of different functions. But showing that God carries out lots of different functions, listens to all of these prayers at the same time and so on, does not prove that God has a complexity of structure. But Dawkins' argument that uh, you know, you can't uh, appeal to God to explain the fine-tuning of the universe and so on because he would have the very same kind of complexity that in its turn would also require a design explanation. The, des the kind of complexity that's involved in that argument is complexity of structure, is specified complexity of structure. So again, Dawkins has talked about the wrong issue in a sense. And it's instructive to note Dawkins' response to Anthony Kenny when he had made this argument that I've just made to you. This is what Dawkins said. I really don't see what you're saying. And I think that basically says what needs saying about Dawkins' a lack of familiarity with philosophical thinking. Well, as the atheist Thomas Nagel puts it, God is not a complex physical inhabitant of the natural world. Or as the atheist philosopher Eric Weilenberg, in a paper reviewing Dawkins' argument likewise, um, says this. He says, the central atheistic argument of the God delusion, this God would need an explanation in turn argument, is unconvincing. And I agree with Eric Weilenberg here. So must God be complex? Well, Dawkins gives no argument showing that God must be complex in the relevant philosophical sense. Dawkins equivocates. He, he switches between different meanings of, of, of language. He equivocates over the terms complex and simple, basically in order to beg the question against God being simple or necessary in the metaphysical theological senses. Think of it this way. Uh, if he'd entitled his book The Contingent God Delusion, he would probably have sold a lot fewer copies of that book. Because very few uh, theists 
believe in contingent gods. That's a polytheistic notion of God. The ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, the ancient Egyptians and so on believed in contingent gods, but uh, monotheists in the Judeo-Christian tradition do not. So in conclusion, Dawkins misunderstands the cosmological argument, doesn't get the point that it's arguing that there needs to be something that, that ends the regress of causality, and that's part of our picture of God. He's, his appeal to evolution to avoid the, the uh, biological design temptation um, just doesn't cover the waterfront. It, it doesn't address the issue of the, the origin of things capable of evolving. So it, it just doesn't address everything that needs addressing. And more fundamental than the, the biological issue is the issue of why there is a universe in which anything of biological complexity and interest can happen in the first place, this fine-tuning issue. And here, his appeal to the scientific theory of, of multiverses is not only scientifically unverified, uh, and therefore doesn't carry uh, any weight at the moment in the discussion, but it's actually disconfirmed by scientific evidence. Remember uh, uh, wrote, um, uh, the stuff we, we quoted from uh, Roger Penrose. And turning to Dawkins' central philosophical argument against a designer, uh, his attempted philosophical responses to the design argument are just unsound. Um, equivocal, beside the point, question-begging, um, as the English might say, it, he just doesn't cut the mustard. Thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. This is a uh, very easy bedtime reading. <laughs> You're all done very well. Uh, a lot of... Uh, contents in what you said, and I think there is room for a lot of uh, discussion here. Yes. Uh, maybe just a preliminary question. Um, in what way may this presentation be available for people who would want to listen to it again, or sure. PowerPoint, if there is any possibility, so please let us know. Um, well, uh, I see you're videoing. I don't know whether you're taking just sound or you're taking pictures as well. Um, if you're taking pictures as well, you, you have that, but I, I have a general policy of not giving out my PowerPoint presentations. But, uh, but I am recording audio for my podcast channel, which is freely available um, on Podbean or through my website and so on. Um, so if you take a, a card or note down my, my website address, um, give me a week or two to get home and upload it, and it, it, it should be there. Um, With your permission, I think we can upload it. Yeah, you, absolutely. You feel free to upload onto your website if you have one, etc. So. Okay, deci fiți liber să transmiteți mișcătura care ar putea fi interesați. Pot să asculte, deci în format audio, pe site-ul lui sau în format video pe site-ul Centrului Areopagus. Uh, thank you so much for allowing thank us you. to no, no worries. put it on our website as well. And uh, um, like you said, <laughs> we can also see the, uh, yeah. the presentation in PowerPoint. Okay. Um, who wants to break the ice? 
ce ne de viața. I want to ask you a, a question. Please. If you see that there is a contradiction between uh, creationism and intelligent design. Right, okay. Uh, the question is, is there a contradiction between creationism and intelligent design? And as a philosopher, of course, I'm going to say it, it depends crucially what you mean by those things, because different people may have different understandings of what those things uh, are. Um, uh, intelligent design is a fairly uh, minimal uh, scientific theory that applies this, uh, this tool of design detection that are already used in other scientific fields and says we should be free to apply that tool within the realm of, of cosmology and biology and so on. We should be free to apply that anywhere and to follow the evidence where it points. So if there's evidence that seems to pass that test for uh, design, we should uh, be free to say that in these instances it seems that there's evidence that passes this test for design and therefore we've got good reason to believe that these things at least are the product of design and that this should go in, in biology, uh, in cosmology, just as much as it uh, could go in forensic science or SETI or um, um, computer uh, code hacking or what have you. Um, people who advance this theory want to claim that it's a scientific theory, but that's a kind of secondary issue to the issue of whether or not it's true because uh, things can be true without being scientific. Uh, and I would argue, um, if the theory is true, if it's true that we've got reliable tests for design and it's true that there's evidence within the fabric of nature that pass those tests, uh, then I think it would be very odd not to um, permit the name science to that project of thinking about the world uh, because what's your alternative? Are you going to suddenly cut funding to the science department and, and channel it all to the theology department in order to better understand cosmology? Um, they wouldn't have the right expertise <laughs> uh, to, to do that. Um, so intelligent design theory is, is a very sort of minimal claim uh, and it's, it's nothing to do with uh, particular interpretations of biblical passages it's not tied to any particular religious tradition. Uh, there are intelligent design theorists who are not Christian. Uh, uh, there are in, uh, intelligent design theorists in other religious traditions with no, no tradition. Um, whereas creationism, although at one level you could say that just means belief in a creator, belief that we are the product of, of a creator, God. It has come to be particularly associated with so-called uh, young earth uh, creationism, uh, which is tied to uh, thinking that a specific way of interpreting certain biblical passages related to creation uh, are, are, are to be interpreted as requiring belief in a relatively uh, young, six, 10,000-year-old earth taking the, the, the days of creation in Genesis in a, a fairly uh, literal kind of 24-hour day, consecutive 24-hour day kind of interpretation of them and, and so on. 
Um, and then uh, scientific creationism uh, tries to argue that that uh, interpretation of scripture uh, is uh, consistent with or even supported by uh, independent scientific evidence. Um, so, it would be possible to be both a young earth creationist and to subscribe to intelligent design theory. As, for example, uh, the philosopher of science Paul Nelson in the United States does. But it's also possible to subscribe to intelligent design theory, like I do, without uh, subscribing to young earth creationism, as I don't. Uh, and other people in that category would be uh, um, Michael Behe, the Catholic uh, biologist who wrote Darwin's Black Box, uh, uh, for example. Um, so you can be a creationist and an intelligent design theorist, or you can be one or the other, um, but they're separable ideas. That they don't believing in one doesn't automatically mean believing in the other. Does does that address the what you were asking? Yes, yeah. I, I thought about the book of uh, Francis Collins, uh, the language of God. Yes. He, as I understood, he is a Christian creationist, mm. but he has some um, uh, some critics about intelligent. Uh, right. Design. Sure. So, in in the sense of believing in a creator. Uh, of, of course, even uh, Christians who uh, uh, agree with some kind of neo-Darwinian uh, scientific theory are creationists. Um, they would just say um, Darwinian theory is a description of the way in which God created the world to work. Um, uh, and so, yes, there are... Uh, Creationists in the general sense of believing in a creator, believing that there is a, 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 an intention and a purpose behind our existence here, and that the intender, the proposer of our existence is, is the God of the Bible, um, who are not uh, either young earth creationists or intelligent design theorists. Um, so the, these, these uh, theories don't all have to bundle together. Um, you can separate them out. Um, and indeed, you know, the, the question, do you believe in evolution, which many people will ask, is, is in a sense far too simple because evolution means lots of different things as well. It means at least half a dozen different things. And you might agree with, with some of those uh, statements, but not others. Um, so some people mean, uh, by evolution, uh, mean the theory of common ancestry, that all present life is, is related to other life back and back and back in time and, and to the origin of life. The theory of universal common ancestry. Um, some people explain that pattern of divergence from a universal common ancestor by appealing to a neo-Darwinian process of, of variation and natural selection. But you don't have to. You could agree with common ancestry but reject the neo-Darwinian explanation of common ancestry. This is something that Michael Behe does. He believes in common ancestry, but he rejects uh, neo-Darwinism as, as a sufficient explanation of that pattern. And yet, uh, many atheists uh, in the discussion uh, use the term evolution sort of to mean both things or both things at once and don't, don't distinguish them. 
Um, so it's very important in these discussions to be clear on the distinctions between things before we ask, then ask the, relation, the question of the relationship between them. We have to know what, how many different things are we talking about and then we can start getting clear about how they relate to each other uh, and which ones are consistent with each other and which ones are not consistent with each other and so on. Yeah. Please. Mm. Uh, if you can suggest some uh, books that can help us to understand Dawkins uh, from more uh, Christian. Sure, okay. Um, I, I, this is where I risk as an author. Uh, advertising my own writings, but apart from my own writings, which you can find about through my website, um, you can get other uh, takes on Richard Dawkins, uh, for example, by reading um, relevant works by the English theologian Alistair McGrath. Um, he's a, a, a theistic evolutionist, but who disagrees uh, with Richard Dawkins, uh, so, you know, a creationist in the general sense, of course. Um, uh, he, he wrote uh, a, a very uh, nice, fairly thin little book uh, responding to Dawkins um, called, uh, I think it was called The Dawkins Delusion. Mm -hmm. And on the front cover of that book, he had an endorsement quote from the atheist philosopher Michael Roos, uh, who specializes in the philo philosophical debate about evolution. And Michael Roos said on the front cover of McGrath's book, um, this book... Uh, uh, shows uh, why, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, shows why Richard Dawkins uh, is the, the sort of atheist that calls other atheists to put their head in their hands. It's kind of, uh, <laughs> kind of shows, shows why uh, Dawkins is completely um, off, off, off topic here. Um, so, um, again, just as we're careful to distinguish between philosophical positions, we must be careful not to paint all, all atheists as having the same views. Um, we, we know from our experience, you know, Christians, and different Christian denominations and churches have theological disagreements among ourselves. Well, it's, it's the same for atheists as well. Uh, they're not a, a monolithic collection of people. Uh, atheists have uh, deep uh, disagreements amongst themselves. And, and in a sense, the critique that I've given of, of Dawkins this evening I was hoping that you picked up at the end that I quoted some criticism of Dawkins from atheist philosophers like Thomas Nagel, like Eric Weilenberg, who are um, professional atheist philosophers who say that Richard Dawkins, his engagement with philosophy is just not very good <laughs> uh, and doesn't work. Um, but they're still atheists. You know, and this is not a criticism of, uh, uh, in a sense, of, of atheism first and foremost, this is a criticism of Richard Dawkins's arguments for being an atheist. Um, and of course I have suggested um, a couple of reasons, the cosmological and design arguments that, that I do think are good arguments for design, but there are much, there are much better uh, criticisms of uh, arguments for God than are put forward by Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion. Um, <laughs> you know. Uh, if, if you really want to in, engage uh, uh, at the high level with these issues, uh, Dawkins is not where you start reading. Yeah. Yes. Um, maybe it's, um, strange what I'm asking. 
I don't know why I have the feeling that uh, while talking about this uh, continuous regression argument mm. and also about uh, the evolutionary argument, uh, these are arguments that need, um, in a way, in order to be valid, they need this linear time. Mm. They need this Newtonian linear time from past to future in order to regress continuous, continuously or to evolve from something that was in something that will be. Yeah. But God is eternal. God, God is, transcends this linear time. Mm. It is I am who I am. It's a state of I don't. It's it's a mystery, but I I, I in my intuition it's uh, it's um, uh, a being that transcends this uh, linearity. Mm. So in a way, uh, these arguments are very relative uh, to a, to a very limited world in which we perceive uh, this time as linearity, because uh, from a transcendental or religious point of view, we deal with eternity, God is eternal, so uh, it's something um, <coughs> much larger, <laughs> right. it's something else. Okay, let me um, try and think of a few comments that relate uh, to that. Um, on the one hand, I would want to say that the, the issue of God's relationship to time is one of those issues that different Christian theologians and philosophers disagree with each other about. Uh, so there, there is a school of, of, of Christian thought that thinks of God as completely outside of time, a, a temporal. Um, that God doesn't have time at all. Right, and so there are, there are then comes the question as well, uh, you know, how more precisely do we think of that? What, what do you mean by, you know, in time but eternal? It's like, yeah, the, is that a contradiction or how do we spell that out? Yeah. Uh, is it just a paradox or is it a contradiction? And so there are a number of different schools in the debate on the issue of God's relationship to time who put forward different theories of how we think of God in relationship to time or, or completely outside of time, as, as some would, would say as well. Um, but note, I don't think this has a direct uh, impact on these arguments. First of all, because, for example, the, the, the arguments that Dawkins makes in response themselves also assume a linear view of time. So you have an evolutionary process where things go from simple in the past to complex uh, in the present through time. Um, you have a, 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 uh, a theory of a multiverse that's being produced by some physical multiverse mechanism within quantum mechanics or something uh, where you, had f you once had fewer universes and now you have lots more. Um, so they're, they're engaging on this level of, of linear time and I think we have the, the best of the arguments that point to something non-physical and non-contingent uh, something that's not a contingent arrangement of parts and so on, uh, beyond or outside in some sense of the physical universe. And it's at that stage that we get into the discussion about, well, what is the relationship between that universe transcending creator and what we might mean by time? So obviously God doesn't depend upon uh, what William Lane Craig calls physical clock time. 
that's measured by the, the expansion of the universe over time, say, because he created that universe. But that doesn't mean that you couldn't have, say, metaphysical notions of time, which are part and parcel of God's very, very character. Um, so he said, you know, if, if you, you have a, a non-physical mind, no physical reality, and that mind is just thinking sequentially to itself, you're thinking one, two, three, no, <laughs> um, I've had at least three thoughts now. I used to be thinking about one, I'm now thinking about three. Um, in a sense, you can say, well, that's time, but it's not physical not dependent upon anything physical by the very definition of the, the, the thought experiment, as it were. So you can have notions of time that are unrelated to physical uh, time, for example. That's just one of the, the different views uh, in this area. So it's a very interesting issue, but I think it, it's more one that, that tends to come up later, apart from the fact that you could say, for example, if you were, you know, you're a theistic evolutionist, and you say, yeah, yeah God just created a world where things would evolve by this process of natural selection. And it's not, it's not that God is, uh, is um, intervening within that process to make sure that it ends up creating human beings. It's just that he knew that that would be the outcome. Because, you know, God's eternal and he has foreknowledge and middle knowledge and, <laughs> and so on. And, and so... Um, that would be one way of 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 holding uh, both together, perhaps. Yeah. Um, I also have a question. Do you think it would be fair to say that, according to Dawkins, the world that we live in is terribly deceptive? Yes. I mean, I, yeah. I'm referring, for instance, to his definition of biology as mm. a study of. I know it here of complicated things that have the appearance, appearance. Yeah. of having been created for a purpose. Yes. And it's a to, deceptive to, appearance. Yes. yes, there is a lot of deceptive. There are yeah. uh, infinite numbers of ducks, yes. which all seem like ducks everywhere around us, but none of them seem to be ducks. Yeah. So in yeah, that yeah. respect, yeah. would yeah. it be fair to say that according to, to his description, the world that we live in is terribly deceptive and mm. I wonder how you know if that is so how he would respond to that kind mm. of charge yes I think I think yes but I think his response would be to say but humans have discovered the scientific method which is a reliable way of, of, of knowing things a reliable way of us discovering when we've been deceived by the appearance of nature we've discovered that this appearance of design is misleading because Darwin has shown how the trick works, for example. Uh, or, um, you know, maybe, you know, religious people in the past have used, used to think that our, our intuitions about morality were telling us things that were true about the world, that it's true that torturing um, children for fun is evil. We have this sort of gut reaction to it. But now we know that there's, you know, there's no designer and we're just the product of a mindless Darwinian evolutionary process. Uh, we know that this is just uh, something that our genes in the past have programmed us to feel that way about that action because in the past it wasn't useful to spreading our genes to torture children. Because obviously if you torture children they tend to die and if they die you're not spreading your genes. Okay? It's something like that. 
some sort of evolutionary process and says, so now we've seen through this idea uh, that we really have uh, moral intuitions that tell us about moral facts. Uh, so it seems to us that there are moral facts, but, but that's a misleading impression. And we have this alternative naturalistic explanation for why it seems to us that there are moral facts. Um, again, that seems to me not to actually address the issue. It, 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 it actually comes in... Uh, what, what, yeah. he, he's, he's, he's really pushing an explanation of... If we had come to the conclusion that our moral intuitions are misleading, they're not telling us truths about reality, then we would face the question, well, how come we have these moral intuitions? Because maybe we were tempted in the past to think, well, God designed us that way, <laughs> to have those moral intuitions. Uh, and if we get rid of God, then we face the question, well, why do we have these moral intuitions? And Darwinism can come along and sort of plug that gap in our understanding of reality. Um, but again, just so because... You no longer have God as an answer to everything, you have Darwin as an answer yeah, yeah. to everything. But, but they're not necessarily contradictory answers in and of themselves, because again, you could say, how has God arranged for us to come to have these moral intuitions by creating a biological process that he knew would lead to us having those intuitions? <laughs> okay. Uh, so simply pointing to the, the scientific explanation doesn't get rid of the, the God bit, doesn't contradict it automatically. As, as John Lennox puts it uh, in the design context, um, pointing, as Dawkins does, to design to get rid of the idea of a designing, of Darwin to get rid of a designing in God, is a bit like looking at uh, a Model T Ford, uh, fresh off uh, Henry Ford's production line. Uh, when he invented the car, the mass-produced car, and saying, ah, now we understand the laws of motor mechanics and combustion and engineering. Uh, we've got all of these scientific explanations for how this vehicle works. Therefore, we don't need to believe in Henry Ford. <laughs> and it's just addressing the wrong issue. <laughs> um, there's uh, an epistemological objection to Darwinism formulated by Darwin himself, mm. uh, which, if I remember rightly, goes, can a mind, then a doubt arises, mm. can a mind descended, I believe, from such lowly origins be trusted mm. when it draws such grand conclusions? Um, which is honest and, mm. in a sense, fairly devastating, yeah, directed yeah. by Darwin against himself. I wonder if Dawkins engages with mm. this epistemological dimension at all. No, no. Um, again, it, Dawkins is not up. Uh, this, is, this debate about whether a naturalistic description of, of what we are as human beings undermines our trust in our own rationality. This is really the question that Darwin, as you say, himself raised, uh, which was raised um, famously by C.S. Lewis in... Uh, his book Miracles, uh, which has been raised uh, recently in a very sophisticated form by the American uh, Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga, um, which has been raised by a number of atheist thinkers in recent day times, like um, Thomas Nagel uh, raises this issue, again, particularly in his book Mind and Cosmos, well worth reading. The subtitle of Thomas Nagel's book Mind and Cosmos is Why the Neo-Darwinian um, picture of reality is almost certainly false. 
He is an atheist philosopher of mind from the United States. Um, well worth reading little book, Mind and Cosmos, um, where you see an atheist seriously grappling with these issues um, and kind of seeing how they're pushing him towards a belief in God, um, but he, doesn't, he really doesn't want to go to that conclusion, so he's really struggling to find some sort of alternative and admits that he doesn't really find one. <laughs> but he's going to keep looking because he really doesn't want the God <laughs> conclusion. Um, but yeah, it's a real serious ir- issue debated by philosophers in the journals and things today, and, and Dawkins is just not really aware of that, that conversation. And I've, I've heard, um, I think it was Paul Copan, the American philosopher, in uh, Dawkins was on a book tour in the United States, uh, and I've heard a, a recording of Paul Copan asking Dawkins that question about, you know, if you explain our minds, everyone's minds is explained by a mindless process that, that in inverted commas, only cares about what works, not what's true. It's not aiming at producing true beliefs, it's just aiming at spreading our genes and, you know, whatever works, right? Um, truth works, but so do lies often work. Um, so does this in any, you know, how, how can you say that the atheist who concludes there's no God is, is necessarily being more rational than the Christian who concludes that there is a God, given that both of their minds, on Dawkins' view, are just the product of this mindless process that not, that's not even trying to aim at truth. And, and, and Dawkins, just in his reply, uh, it was clear that he just didn't understand the question. He'd never thought of the question before. Richard Dawkins is the creator of the word meme. Yes. Uh, or at least, uh, yeah. um, so it's uh, an interesting example of mm. how an intelligent mind can create something which takes on a life of its own. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I put in the hip to go. I, yeah, super appreciated the Thank you. speech. And uh, I shared some friends before we arrived on, on the way here. I thought, why is it that I am not really concerned with these issues? Mm. And uh, it's interesting how some of us, I hope we are all right, but I'm kind of finding, finding, find it uh, an extra effort that for me, for my own personality. Mm. Mm. It's something that is not necessary. I don't say waste of time, but it's not necessary. Seriously, for me, things are so, in a sense, not obvious. I'm not, I, I have my doubts in big ways. But it's, in a sense, I find it difficult to keep going to, to the mm. analytical, and this is what I want to bring to the, the question here. Yeah. And my, my, my colleague from the university just mm. mentioned mm. that earlier. I, I recognize the same thing. There are schools, philosophical schools, and philosophical, or schools of thought. Analytical minds are craving for this. Are, are, very much interested for it, but then, mm. then we are more. I'm more continental minded mm, mm, philosopher, mm. and for me, things seem to be way beyond these kind of, uh, of uh, arguments for many other reasons. For, for many reasons, but I know I'm sure these are arguments coming from a different perspective. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. For double, double dozens, yeah. two dozens of, of arguments. Right. Uh, I, I yeah, think, for instance, yeah. of uh, you, Carl Gustav Jung, you mm. once asked me in an interview. Uh, sir, but do you believe in God? 
and he was kind of literally, mm. you, you can see, kind of said, well, what do you mean? I mean, I, 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 I know, I, mm. I know that he's God. I don't need to believe. Yeah. Uh, is that kind of uh, awareness mm. of mm. the other thing that is way bigger mm. than us? Yeah. And that's right. I mean, that's why I, I, I wanted to try and make the connections at the beginning with, with, with our basic intuitions about reality and say that the, the sort of the, the academic philosophical debate is, is connected to that very widespread uh, intuitional sort of level of thinking about the world. In philosophy, we start, as Swinburne was saying, from what seems to be the case and then we work out and get more and more complicated from there. And of course, not everyone's personality is the same, nor should it be. And we're not all called to be professional analytical philosophers. Uh, and that's good, because we'd all starve if that was the case. Uh, and we wouldn't, you know, <laughs> uh, we, wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't have any computers uh, to show our PowerPoint on, because no one would be doing computing studies, and so on. So uh, that's good, that's good. Um, but uh, as you say, for those... Uh, for those who have that kind of approach to thinking about the world, um, this can be really uh, useful and empowering. And also, in, t in terms of our evangelism, it may, it may not be a subject that interests us, but if we discover it, that, that it is a topic uh, that is really uh, shaking the faith of a family member because they've read a Richard Dawkins book, or uh, a colleague in our university uh, department uh, has uh, this kind of was, was scientific worldview, etc. Then, I just yeah. Made, I just wanted to make a point of having different views on this issue. For instance, yeah, I, yeah. I have my own major problems in terms of justifying meaning and faith, and, and but they come through different through different window. Yeah. Uh, and and sure. For, for instance, I, I I just had fun when I read recently that Derrida, Jacques Derrida, was supposed to be given an honorary doctorate in Cambridge in the 80s. And all the major philosophers alive in Cambridge stopped it and said, it's no way that we give a doctoral degree mm. to this guy. He does rubbish with everything we do. Mm, he's, mm, he's trashing out everything we do. <laughs> 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 he constructs everything. Yeah, yeah. He's with us and he's just made oh, fun. Yeah. But at the same time, I take him very seriously because mm, you mm. can do that. Yeah. If you lose reference yeah, yeah. systems, then you can, lose, you, can, you can lose everything you are lost. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think there was a bigger divide. In, the, in, in sort of C.S. Lewis's day, in the early 20th century, philosophy had got, analytic philosophy had got in this rut about language and how we use it and what it means, and scientism and avoiding the big metaphysical questions. But there was a revolution in, in philosophy in the sort of 1960s-ish, and those big metaphysical me questions of, of you know, things like the meaning and purpose of life and is there a God and the problem of evil and, and, and what is a good life and virtue theory and so on all, all came back in so I, I think there's perhaps more in common between the so-called sort of continental you know, reading uh, and of course you know, the continent has produced lots of great analytical philosophers historically speaking and uh, lots of analytical philosophers from the, the, the British American tradition are very interested in writers like um, Pascal and Kierkegaard and, and so on, so, yeah. Could you Anybody else who does not... Could you argue that mm. um, intuition is a product of education? Uh, well, one could try and argue uh, that, but... Could be. Uh, um, uh, yeah, uh, I, I think... I, sociologically, uh, historically speaking, the intuition that there is, a, is some kind of deity of superior intelligence is one that's been shared across 
cultures over a very long historical period, uh, and so it's harder to argue that that is uh, specifically shaped by a particular educational culture than maybe some other beliefs you might be able to, to point to. So if, you know, if um, Cicero, who's a pagan Roman, can say the same sort of things about the heavens declaring the glory of the Lord as Paul, uh, who's a, a Jew, Jew educated in Greek thought, can say the same sort of thing as Aristotle was saying 500 years earlier. Um, uh, and uh, as you can uh, find this sort of intuition in a uh, creator in um, far-flung uh, tribes and cultures and so on around the world, uh, in different civilizations over uh, as long a historical period as we have recorded history uh, for, uh, then, um, yeah, it would be pretty difficult to argue that, oh, that, we can just dismiss that because it's the product of this particular sort of educational system or whatever, yeah. In a way, um, this way of, of transmitting through generations that happens also in, in, in tribes and so on sure. is a way of education. But then you could go on and, and <coughs> it just has to stop somewhere. <laughs> yes, you can't have an infinite regress, that's right. And, and people's intuitions, I think, have to change. People can question their tradition and, and change traditions and, and things. And this, this is one that has continued on uh, through thousands of years of history and has crossed across cultures and, and, and so on. Um, and we ask, do our, do our intuitions chime with what we're being told by our elders? Um, and, and if they don't, then that, that does call into question. <laughs> Uh, the tradition uh, in which we're uh, living or, or the, what we're being told or our intuition and we start wrestling with it and then perhaps we start thinking at a more analytical level about things and perhaps um, giving reasons that, that, that uh, justify or argue against our intuitions and then we're into the philosophical debate which again is a very long-standing cross-cultural uh, debate uh, where, at least historically speaking, the majority of the, of the great philosophers have believed in some kind of creator. Okay, maybe time for one last quick question and one quick answer if <coughs> someone has not had the chance to ask. Uh, I have one. First, well, I want to say that I'm a believer, but uh, I put many questions. Some of them are funny questions or bad questions, I don't know. Mm. Say that as humans we have finite minds, and um, when we make assumptions about God, we make assumptions about something infinite. And how do we know that our assumptions of any idea or concept are true or good, uh, good concept? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, again, I, I start from the point of we 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 start working from what seems to be the case whilst being open to being convinced that we're wrong. The only alternative to that methodology is to start with a very deep scepticism about our ability to know and reason about anything from which there is no rescue, right? there's no rational rescue. Um, so the choice is really, are, are we going to try and be as reasonable as we can, help each other, critique each other and so on uh, to be as reasonable as we can knowing that we're fallible which gives us a, a sense of, of humbleness in, in the process our openness to being you know show me a good argument why i'm wrong and i'll change my mind you know that sort of commitment to the truth 
as opposed to my truth. Yeah, that's uh, the, the the commitment of the true philosopher. Um, or we just go, and, you know, I don't know, go and play backgammon, as David Hume said. But even to play ga- backgammon, you have to trust in the reliability of your senses and. Uh, you know, how we treat other people and so on is bound up with our notions of what kind of things they are, whether they really exist or not. You know, I might treat you very differently if I were convinced, as as some people have theorised, that we're all living in an artificially um, constructed world in a computer. This is all a computer programme, you know. We're all in the matrix kind of thing. And, And maybe I'm the only real person here and you're, you are all artificial intelligences or the, the avatars of alien gaming, gaming teenagers who are playing the let's be a human game, you know. Um, <laughs> well, again, like, okay, there's a theory. Uh, if that theory were true, then I am drastically deluded about the kind of reality that I'm living in. But it's the conspiracy theorist's job to give us a good reason to believe that that conspiracy theory is true. It's not our job to show him that our common sense picture of reality is, is the correct one. Um, it's about who, who reasonably bears that burden of, of proof or justification. And I, and I think we start with our basic intuitions, some of which we just can't escape, some of which we, we could do without, but they seem really, really strong and basic. Uh, and they are the only things that allow us to get, get this process of arguing and critiquing our understanding of, of the world underway in the first place. You've got to start from somewhere in order to do anything. <laughs> uh, uh, so are you going to do nothing? Can you? <laughs> or are you going to try and just do the best with what you have? Uh, and that's what the philosophical tradition historically tries to do. Yeah. Okay, thank you thank so you. much, and I'm sure, um, you know, if uh, you'll still be available for a few minutes, yes, yes. we want more informally to talk to you. Absolutely. Um, once again, we want to say a very deep thank you for coming all the way to Timisoara, for giving such a dense and important presentation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Please, I encourage you to take one of these uh, cards and also uh, uh, please find some time and take a look at the website. Mm. Um, you have a lot of interesting presentations there, both audio and video presentations on a very wide range of topics. Feel free to uh, send forward to other people also if you think they are interested to, to listen or to hear. And uh, also, uh, uh, on uh, behalf of Ariopo, oh, just symbolically you. to say thank you, thank very you much, so much Ariopo. for coming here. Thank it's you. And hope thank to you. have you again here sometime. Uh, yeah.